call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I count it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf for mine Kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf for mine Your shelf or Hello, and welcome to your shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky Standel, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant here at the Longview Public Library. Today, we are here for our May Reading Challenge read. Well, the author we're doing is Herman Melville. Author's name that strikes dread in the hearts of many students. Um, <laughs> yeah. But before we get into our Melville, we'll talk a little bit of library library news it's been an exciting time at the library perhaps the biggest news if you haven't heard is we have a new director coming on board his name is jacob cole and he'll start wednesday june 1st probably about the time that this podcast will be out yeah coming right up and he's coming to us from anchorage alaska uh, we're very we're very excited we're very excited um, you've probably also noticed another new face, uh, maybe, if you're in here at the right time and she was out on desk, uh, Heather Palo, our new communications specialist. She's a wizard with marketing and promotion and everything, and um, she's going to help us make sure that you find out about all the great stuff that's going on here at the library. Yeah. Uh, we're also really gearing up for our summer reading program, which starts on June 15th. Uh, we'll have fun activities for all ages and uh, challenge you to read every day this summer or um, as many days as you can. So uh, you can visit Beanstack site for um, information about that. Registration for, for pre-registration for summer reading will start June 1st and the program starts June 15th. That's exciting. Seed Library is still going strong. Uh, we've given out, coming up on 150 uh, households have received seeds, and we are going to continue those. There's going to be some prizes announced soon for a drawing later in the summer. Um, you get a ticket just by picking up your seed kit, but you can also earn additional chances to win by participating in our Beanstack Seed Library Challenge, which is a new thing we're trying out this year. So we also had a successful Northwest Voices event last night, which for us was May 19th. Uh, we had local author and uh, family forester, Ann Stinson. Yeah, very exciting. It was it was very, very good. And uh, She talked about her book. 
the ground at my feet, sustaining a family and a forest. That was OSU Press. If you're interested, we have a copy at the library, but there are also many copies, I'm told, at Vault, Books and Brew, and Castle Rock. She's going to be up there for a signing in July, so stay tuned for that. We'll pass along that information. Really, really fun event. Uh, we're going to be having a lot of those showing up on YouTube in the coming weeks and months as Heather works on that, so, so stay tuned. There's just so much going on. Uh, we've also got a new service called Canopy. Very exciting uh, video streaming service. Includes a lot of independent films, award winners, great courses, documentaries, PBS stuff. And it also has, yeah, it has all the Ken Burns documentaries if you're into him, which I know a lot of us are. And it also has like a special kids feature where you select kids and it has like its own, what am I trying to say? Like, like, a, like a channel, curated collection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, actually, and we'll, we'll get to this more after we talk about Melville, but our, our next author, Armistead Maupin, you know how I learned about him? A documentary on Canopy. Whoa. Yeah. So I guess now we have to talk about Herman Melville. There was a, there was a very short Melville documentary available on Canopy, but we did not watch it. Um, I don't, I've, okay. So here's the background of me choosing Herman Melville for this challenge. I, I went to like a small liberal arts college and my, I uh, majored in English. My advisor was like an American studies fellow, very into Melville and Mark Twain and would like frequently make little digs, I think, at his students about even like when we'd have past students come back or people who worked you know, a college staff who had worked on a school there, always little digs about them never having read Moby Dick. And then, um, so I had that in the back of my mind. And then when I was, I worked here several years ago, I was um, weeding in the children's fiction section and weeding means going through and, you know, getting rid of material that's no one is reading or is damaged, damaged or outdated and to my astonishment we had like three copies of unabridged moby dick in the children's <laughs> fiction section well you, you got to get them going young becky <laughs> and i was like not only do children not read moby dick no one reads adults, moby dick adults don't read moby Dick. so i had um i think i ended up getting rid of one of them and having the other two copies like moved up to the adult <laughs> section um, where they can get occasionally checked out and return unfinished to the library. Whoa. And anyways, this started like become a joke where I, I would, you know, I think Carl, who was our reference librarian at that time, he's like, of course people read Moby Dick. And I'd be like, Carl, did you ever read Moby Dick? And he would, you know, he's no. He would admit to it. <laughs> um, and then it just became a, like a running thing where I would just make that comment a lot about how no one's ever read Moby Dick. And then Jacob gave me this copy of Moby Dick that I have now. Right. As a joke, because he always had this copy for a long time. And he bought it, like, I think as an ambitious teen and, of course, never read it. Anyways, I decided that this was going to be the year that I would read Moby Dick. And the other inspiration was um, last spring I watched an author presentation um, from Brian Selznick, who is an author-illustrator for mostly for children. He's done some adult books, too, talking about his pandemic experience. And so when... 
everything first shut down in March of 2020, he was in New York and his husband was in San Francisco and that closure like separated them. And so Brian Selznick ended up being home alone in a New York apartment for like months. And he he did some art and he talked about that in his presentation and it kind of led to him writing his last book, which is called Kaleidoscope. But the thing that he also did, he said, was that he read Moby Dick cover to cover like three times in a row. He in would just row. finish and then start it again. And it's so, like some kind of religious exercise. Yeah, it reminded me a lot. Um, and I think other other places where I've heard people who really love Moby Dick or read about them reading the book, it reminds me of that Vanessa Zoltan's practice of reading Jane Eyre as a sacred as a text. Sacred text, or yeah. Harry Potter as a sacred text. Yeah. So. And it lends it. I I think Moby Dick. Uh, you know, and honesty here. Honesty. I did not do as well on this challenge this month as as Becky did. I like to be honest with all of you folks at home. Uh, she read me aloud some Moby Dick, but I did not read it. But the the sense I got from the sampling she gave me is that that's a book that lends itself to that uh like the bible <laughs> it's you know dense and complicated and recursive and uh, digressive and mm -hmm. um uh i can imagine if you like it and i kept thinking of like monty python it's like now for something completely different <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i didn't really have any history with melville Except sort of being, you know, like everybody, like aware. It's very much in the culture, even though probably a, many more people than would admit it, but a vast majority of the people have not read any actual Melville. I did do uh, go on to see if there was any Simpsons episodes that had like a, a chunk of Moby Dick, which is where I have a lot of cultural knowledge from the Simpsons. Yeah. And they make several like allusions or jokes about it, but there's not an episode that's really about. Well, and, and it's entered the culture and, you know, mm -hmm. people talk about their white whales, you know, and mm -hmm. things like that. So it's interesting. But uh, so I don't know. It, it, he's an interesting he's an interesting fellow. I ended up reading a fair amount about him and he led a very interesting life. Um, I had decided while well, Becky was going to tackle Moby Dick, I'd try to read some of the other stuff because he wrote quite an eclectic, you know, body of work. And he had a very interesting life. Most of his published works were written and published within a very short, like 11 year time span. I think he wrote Moby Dick, which is like a 650 page novel, which tons of allusions and lots of like facts as they knew them or understood them at the time about whales. He wrote that, I think, in less than a year. Yeah. And then I don't know if you if you know this, but uh, he turned around then and published another really big book the next year, mm -hmm. Pierre or the Ambiguities, which I, I kind of want to read that one. I probably won't. But <laughs> depending on who you ask, it's either like the, you know, I think I read a review John Updike had written about Melville where he said that Moby Dick followed by Pierre was was the this most striking contrast of a great book and a terrible book ever written. <laughs> but then other people think it's more interesting. But it's like, what did Jill Lepore, there's a great piece in the New Yorker, if you want a little primer uh, on, on Melville's life, she wrote this great piece called Melville at Home. Um, Jill Lepore, who's written a number of, of wonderful works of history. And it's just such an interesting guy. But yeah, he wrote he wrote very fast and to just kind of take people through, it was like he, so he wrote a couple of early hits, 
Yeah. So he had, as a young man, gone out like as a merchant sailor and then as mm-hmm. a, and then a, as a whaler. whaler and then wrote. A, I yeah. think when he was on his whale, is that is the whale ship the one that he abandoned? Yeah. So he deserted in, deserted. in uh, Polynesia and then like hung out for a while. And then like, I guess this was a thing you could do. It reminds me of like airline pilots dead. What do they call that? Deadheading around where they like jump on they have the ability to jump on different flights and move around he like jumped on another whaler and then he got off on another a nantucket whaler and then he came home but yeah he spent a bunch of time among polynesian people and he wrote Taipei and omu which were like real popular they're the only things he wrote pretty much that are purportedly like fact nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, but he was really dogged i guess by questions about what how factual they were and he was really sick of that and who knows how factual they were. And so he didn't ever write anything that was published as nonfiction again. But I thought it was really interesting in Jill Lepore's piece. She said the more useful distinction between Melville's work isn't nonfiction or fiction. It's nautical or non-nautical. <laughs> but most of it's nautical. Um, so, yeah, he wrote those. And then he tried to write fiction and he wrote like there was a miserable failure and then a couple that like did okay but still he was kind of like thought of as this like like a popular i don't know like a pop writer like a bestseller he's the guy who wrote writes about ocean adventures Mm -hmm. and then he comes out with moby dick which is like very uh you know not written written to sell in that sense no it was very mixed mixed reviewed at the time yeah Another thing I read about Melville a lot was that they were like, very few other authors have had their fame be almost so entirely posthumous. So like he died and people were not talking about Mm -hmm. his work. Yeah, after his last novel, he, I think he just started writing poetry pretty exclusively. He was like a successful poet. And then he worked in the customs office until he died. So yeah, so he wrote, it's a weird collection of stuff, right? So there's like the big novels, like Pierre and Moby Dick. Um, he did have some success after that. Um, he, he kind of fell into a relationship with Putnam's Magazine and started writing for them short stories and novellas. And that's where we get Bartleby the Scrivener and Benito Serino and some that have are held up. The Piazza was his book of short, shorter fiction. And that, that gets held up as one of the better things. And Bartleby the Scrivener, I did read. Yeah, um, I meant to reread Bartleby the Scrivener. I'd read it in college, but I, I'm still working on The White Whale, so uh, <laughs> I didn't get to it. But Austin li- liked it. I did. I, I liked- think that was, you know, I kept looking for the entrance point because sometimes that's the thing to a body of work. And maybe sometimes there is no entrance point. <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you'll, you'll find the right thing to start with and that'll kind of unlock it for you. Mm-hmm. You'll click. And I kept trying to, you know, I try a little of this, try a little of that. I have one of these Library of America omnibus, you know, books that get you in trouble because you check one out and it's actually, it looks like one book, but it's actually like, you know, seven. But I found Bartleby the Scrivener more accessible, Mm -hmm. one of the more accessible things. And it's just so strange. Becky can attest to this. As I was reading it, I was so like mad and frustrated at the character. He really. He hates Bartleby. He's really good at winding you up. And then I think, like the character who narrates Bartleby the Scrivener, I'm just like, what just happened? You know? Like, you get through this. So so to to lay it out, it's like a story of Wall Street. And they're like, um, it's this guy's, he's a lawyer. The guy who narrates it is a lawyer. He's got like an office. and He's got some Scriveners. They're like guys who, you know, scribble for him. They copy papers and things like that. 
And he's got this weird little crew, right? He's got this one guy who, like, is like an angel in the morning. And then I don't know if he starts drinking with lunch, but it gets into, like, furious rages in the afternoon. And this other guy, I can't really remember what his deal is, kind of skulks around. And then he hires Bartleby. And it seems fine at first, you know, and he does good work. And then he just starts, like, he asks him to do something. And he's like, I'd prefer not to. He, he sets him up with, like, this little screen. So he has, like, kind of a little cubicle. And uh, he starts saying, I would prefer not to, to all these different things. And it escalates. It escalates and escalates and escalates. And the lawyer, it's like, he's like, oh, I should just, you know, should just fire him. I should. But something keeps him on the hook. Something keeps him from from doing it. He's captivated by this guy. He could, you know, he's got this like magnetic. His refusal is magnetic for some reason. <laughs> and his like, he's so placid about it. So, but it escalates and it escalates and pretty soon he won't do any work. There's a funny thing where it's like, he won't even, like he won't run any errands. At one point, uh, Melville says, the lawyer <laughs> needs him to like stick his finger on a knot he's tying. And he says, I would prefer not to. <laughs> and the story's kind of this like f- comic, like you're just like, oh my gosh, just, well maybe just me, but fire him already or what are you gonna do? And then it takes it takes this turn into a kind of tragedy, and uh, and it's real mysterious, and you sort of get to the end of it, and I that's where I feel like the lawyer. I'm like, what just happened? What was that? Because you know, uh, I guess to spoil the story, but people know it's kind of like famous. So uh, yeah, you can get like a million T-shirts that say I would prefer not to. You know, he eventually. He tries to fire him, you know, and, and Bartleby is also, he discovers living in the office because he comes in on Sunday one day. He's like going to see a, a sermon from a famous preacher, a popular thing to do at that time on a, you know, on the weekend. And he's like, uh, if the weekend existed anyway, he's like going down. And so he's like, I'll stop at the office and get whatever. And he puts his key in the lock and Bartleby is at the door and he's like, you can't come in. And he's like, what do you mean I can't come in? And he's like, I prefer you didn't. And then he like has him walk around the block and he can't come in his own office and he finds out Bartleby's living there. And eventually he resorts to just vacating the building to get away from Bartleby. And so the new owners like come to him and are like, you have to get rid of this guy. He won't leave. He just stares at the wall. Cause like also out their window, the view is of a wall. <laughs> he just stares at the wall and eventually they arrest him and take him to the tombs, which is like a, you know, prison, I don't know, Rikers Island kind of situation in New York. And uh, he goes to see him there, and Bartleby prefers not to eat, and so he just starves to death. And it's a real, I don't even know how to unpack it. It's brilliant, I think, but and kind of surreal. Um, so that was the big thing I finished of, of Melville's. And then the other thing I, I, I was reading is uh, Billy Bud's Sailor, which... So, as Becky said, uh, Melville stopped writing fiction. He wrote L- The Piazza. He wrote those tales. He he wrote a book, Israel Potter, that's like a novelization of a memoir by a Revolutionary War hero. Um, you know, he odds and ends. And then he goes and he just writes, like, um, poetry. But somewhere along the line, he started writing fiction again. I'm not sure when it was or, you know, what prompted it. But he, he started this manuscript called Billy Bud Sailor. And it uh, they didn't find it until it was saved in like a 
a tin. His wife saved it. Yeah, and they did not save stuff. Melville like, they famously burned, their burned letters. his everything. All his manuscripts, his relatives burned things. Hardly any letters exist of him and his family. I think we have some letters because like the Hawthorns kept them. He wrote to Nathaniel and Sophia Hawthorne a lot. Um, and his sister Augusta, who was the closest to him and actually did all the copying mm-hmm. of his pages for Moby Dick. You know, God bless her. She saved, she was seemed to be the odd one in the family and she saved a couple of Siemens trunks uh, that ended up like in a barn that some people found in the 80s and ended up in the New York uh, Public Library and they're the Augusta Melville papers. And uh, in that Jill Lepore piece, she kind of talks about, a, it's, you know, she's kind of looking at Melville from a feminist lens. And she talks sort of about how he didn't write about women very well. He was very, very much at all. Very much at all. Maybe because he recognized that. They talked about, Ralph Ellison wrote about him a bunch and that he, he talked about race a lot and was very impassioned about race and would complain about people's depictions of black people, but wasn't, but wouldn't depict women very well. And he tried in Pierre and then he pretty much never tried again. He just wrote about these very male worlds and that figures into speculation, you know, about his, his um, sexuality. There's, Lots of speculation about that. Yeah, especially speculation about how like how he really felt about Nathaniel Hawthorne, who he admired. He dedicated Moby Dick to him. Yeah. Um, but like historians yeah, have talked about, like you can speculate and you can read. Oh, sure. You know, you can read Moby Dick with a queer lens and sure. other of his works. But because of their practice of burning all of their letters and journals and stuff, there's no... Way for anyone to know, you know. Well, and I think it's also hard because you're trying to look at textual clues mm-hmm. across quite a space of, like, cultural difference. Mm-hmm. So men wrote to each other differently than to – do you know what I mean? There's So it's like how do you – especially when, like you say, the most intimate materials are gone. You know, it's like people point to oh, Hoth- that him being sort of effusive about Hawthorne in a way that, I guess – culturally isn't thought of as a way a man would express about another right. man but back then i don't know some there it was different but uh you know there's also speculation and then also that you know like the idea of him being a little of an eccentric might have lent himself to, you know that he was he was very eccentric his daughter burnt a bunch of letters um and wouldn't actually speak his name after he died and the poor writes probably because he was insane difficult but yes he had a farm that was really beloved of him, to him called Arrowhead in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And eventually he has to sell. He had a lot of financial problems. And he had married a woman who was kind of from a, an aristocratic family in New England. And I think there was a lot of pressure. Even even the money he made off of his first two books was like small change next to old money. Sorry. And people talk about, and I think you see this in what in what Becky read to me of Moby Dick and what I read alone is that Melville has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and you see that in the furiousness of his writing he one he's trying to make a living like Mm. he's trying to live up to I think his marriage and supporting his big family because his father died insane yeah and he has to take care of his and he's take care of and his sisters but also you see it in how over the top he is with all the references and the trying to be so erudite and he seems like somebody who was he was trying to prove something. And there's class stuff there, I think. And, you know, wanting admission to 
the world of the Nathaniel Hawthorns, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, so I have only ever read of Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter, and I could say it's much shorter, but not like any less dense or delightful to read than Moby Dick. Moby Dick has been interesting, and so I still have about 200 pages, and I actually think that it picks up again at the end, kind of how it was in the beginning, because how it starts, like the first several chapters are like you're reading a regular novel, and I was like, oh, you know, the Ishmael narrator is kind of funny. There's a lot more humor in it than I think it ever gets credit for, and it's kind of silly. He's like, oh, you know, uh, whenever I get to feeling like I just want to knock the hat off a passing stranger's head, then I know I need to get back to the sea and so the whole first chapter is him like walking to an inn but it's kind of delightful in the way that he describes people um, and introduces characters is thorough and interesting and funny Um, he does talk a lot about race and there's a lot of different ethnicities and stuff on the Pequod it's very (laughs) might have been open-minded for a Victorian but it's definitely grounded in Victorian like ideas of racial hierarchy in a very like matter of fact way. Right. But, you know, he meets Queequeg and and that's a silly scene in the beginning of the book. And then once they go out on the ship, it turns into like different I was like an experimental writing. Um, there's like this series of chapters where I'm like, oh, right now Moby Dick is a is a musical there's like some soliloquy chapters and then a musical number like a, literally a chapter that is a like a ensemble musical number where they're like singing about going out on the whaling ship and i was like this is so interesting and then like you turn the page and he's like let me give you a history of the whale lots of cytology i think is how you say that he insists ishmael the narrator insists that he's kind of like the most knowledgeable person about whales Um, That whales are not mammals, as Linnaeus might have suspected at that time, but really were fish, just fish that he called um, spouting fish with a sideways (laughs) tail. Yeah, he's real like cocky, from what you read me, real cocky about his like, listen, everybody's wrong. Mm-hmm. I've got the real scoop on whales. And uh, and it's in the narration is funny too. And it's sometimes self-aware the character is writing from like a distance of time from this incident. Yeah. Um there's chapters where he's like here's here's a bunch of people who did not know how to draw whales. Uh, here's a couple people who maybe could have got got it a little bit right. That's a different chapter. I also remember the chapter this wasn't so much him telling everybody they were wrong, but just the thoroughness where you were reading all the references. He collects all these references That's to the whales in literature. That's at the beginning of the book. Yeah, the sub-sub-sub-librarian collects him all these references to whales. Sub-sub-sub-librarian. Should get that bef- on a t-shirt. That's before Call Me Ishmael. Oh, wow. It's like a preface or something. Oh, my gosh. He is funny, though. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in Bartleby and in other things, I'm reading, like, I think – some of the times when I, I like him when he gets kind of lyrical and talks, describes things, but he does have a strength for like when he does it for narration and mm-hmm. for like the self-aware narrator, like even in Billy Budd, which seems like a much more, and I don't know, I'd have to read more about like what his motivations were if they know about Billy Budd, 
But like, it's a story that takes place on a, a naval ship. And Billy Budd gets impressed into service. He's like on a merchant ship and he's this young man. And he's kind of like, I don't know, it feels like it's going to be a real allegorical thing. He's like the, the real innocent. He's a real innocent guy. But the master at arms has it in for him for some reason that I don't think the master at arms even really understands. Something about Billy Budd's like innocence makes this guy want to ruin his life. But it seems like a much more, it's very much more streamlined and much more narrative driven. But the narration is real. Like he kind of told, oh, reader, you know, like, you know what kind of story this is. Or you think, you, you know, he's like talking in this kind of meta way. In Moby Dick, there's this part where he's like, in as much as this book has a through narrative. <laughs> like, okay, so you knew what you were doing. There's this one chapter where he tries to describe why the white whale is so creepy by saying like you know sometimes whiteness is good or purity or but sometimes it's just creepy or it signals death or it just like freaks me out <laughs> on and on for several pages trying to just really get across why uh, Moby Dick being like a white whale makes it worse somehow than if he was a regularly colored a regular whale. whale but I also really like I took a photo of the book and this is in the chapter called the affidavit which i don't remember exactly what the affidavit is but he's talking about the story of the and so throughout the book they keep meeting these other ships and ahab the captain of the boat who's obsessed with this whale because edia's leg and now he wants revenge to murder the whale and he gets like he shows his obsession more and more as the book goes on he's like asks everyone have you seen the white whale and then if they say no he like totally loses interest anyway so there's all these side stories about the whale that go on in the book. This chapter is about a different story about the whale where it's almost like Moby Dick saved someone from murdering somebody else by swallowing them whole instead. There was this whole thing on this other boat. But he says, I do not know where I can find a better place than just here to make mention of one or two other things, which to me seem important as in printed form establishing in all respects the reasonableness of the whole story of the white whale, more especially the catastrophe, which is what he's getting to. But for this is one of those disheartening instances where truth requires full as much bolstering as error. So ignorant are most landsmen of some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world, that without some hints touching the plain facts, historical and otherwise, of the fishery, they might scout at Moby Dick as a monstrous fable, or still worse and more detestable, a hideous and intolerable allegory. So the narrator's saying, like, I don't want you to ever think that this isn't just a real thing that happened, which is funny. It reminds me of there's this episode of Parks and Recreation where Ron... Ron Swanson is like teaching Rob Lowe's character, Sam, I can't remember, how to like build a, a crib. And, and he's like, oh, I get it. You're also like teaching me about being a father. And he's like, no, I don't like, you know, metaphors. He's like, that's why my favorite novel is Moby Dick. <laughs> that's it's, a good joke. It's, <laughs> he said, it's just about a, a man's hatred of an animal. <laughs> Anyways, I read that in the, in the book, and it made me think of that. It made me oh laugh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so there's been lots of whale information, but I think what it's getting to, the part where I'm at, picks up to the disaster where they actually see and go after the whale, and he destroys their lives. And yeah. So I'm going to finish it. And one of the reasons, I mean, I might take a break, but Austin and I have been planning a trip to New England for the fall, 
and we have like this little list of literary places we want to go yes and so we want to go to arrowhead it is a museum now mm-hmm. and i want to have finished moby dick by the time that we go yeah this is how we are this is our disease or maybe <laughs> our our strength but we plan trips and then assign ourselves lots of reading material <laughs> and or plan trips around things we want to read or have read or have read so, yeah, famously, you know, New England is dense with sites. In Massachusetts. We're looking forward to talking to you all about that after that trip, mm-hmm. too. And I think we may even have a special guest who's also an aficionado of New England literary traveling, Heidi Bauer, who's a professor over at LCC. Uh, so I'm very I'm very excited about that. Yeah. One of the things I liked about that Jill Lepore piece was that she talked a lot. It's called Melville at Home. And she talked a lot about his household and how much he loved Arrowhead. And I wanted to read, we usually like to read a little bit and I might read another little bit, but actually this is like the little intro thing to Pierre, which is the novel he wrote right after Moby Dick. And I don't know, it's it sounds interesting. A lot of, he thought of them as twin novels, but Pierre is totally, you know, it's uh, one of the few things he wrote that's centered on land. It's real autobiographical about New England and, you know, family and yeah, his- incest and stuff that's a whole nother thing <laughs> well but i liked this because it talks a little bit about the dedication of pierre how much he really really loved that place and uh, there's a nearby mountain called Greylock, and it's titled to Greylock's most excellent majesty in old times authors were proud of the privilege of dedicating their works to majesty a right noble custom which we of Berkshire must revive. For whether we will or no, majesty is all around us here in Berkshire, sitting as in a grand congress of Vienna of majestical hilltops and eternally challenging our homage. But since the majestic mountain, Greylock, my own more immediate sovereign lord and king, hath now for innumerable ages been the one grand dedicatee of the earliest rays of all the Berkshire mornings, I know not how his imperial purple majesty, royal-born porphyrogenitus, will receive the dedication of my own poor solitary ray. Nevertheless, forasmuch as I, dwelling with my loyal neighbors, the maples and the beeches, in the amphitheater over which his central majesty presides, have received his most bounteous and unstinted fertilizations, it is but meet that I here devoutly kneel and render up my gratitude, whether thereto the most excellent purple majesty of Greylock, benightedly incline his hoary crown or no. Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I, I really like that line about how Greylock... Uh, for innumerable ages has been the one grand dedicatee of the earliest rays of all the Berkshire mornings. And he know, he doesn't know how the mountain will receive the dedication of his one poor solitary ray. He had talked about, too, in writing Moby Dick, looking out at that mountain and seeing that the white whale in the yeah. peak of the mountain. Yeah. Lepore writes a lot about how he he wrote all these things about the ocean and stuff, but he always wrote them on land. <laughs> And and he talks in some of his surviving correspondence and stuff about like when the snow is down in that area of the Berkshires, he feels like the house is a ship and he's out on the ocean and he feels like he needs to climb up the rigging to the chimney, you know, and, and she'd talk about how he would sit there in his fire and he would use a harpoon as a poker. Yeah. Um, I guess that's one of the things you can see if you go to Arrowhead yeah, is his harpoon. Yeah, they still have that. And some like little... S- scratchings that they made and yeah the the hawthorns or no the scratchings of the wood i'm getting or maybe that's at the hawthorns so one of the hawth the hawthorns there's lots of famous houses at the hawthorns house 
there's little drawings in the window panes that Sophia Hawthorne made with her diamond ring. Mm. Herman Mel is such an interesting character and the way that people, some people really connect with his work, I think makes, I like reading a about it maybe more than I like reading it. I had found this fascinating blog and it's called The Beige Moth. I just ran across it because in the chapters where Ishmael is talking about who can and cannot draw good pictures of whales, there's no pictures in the book. So I was online like trying to search for who he's talking about. And whoever keeps this blog called The Beige Moth read the book several times and did this whole project where they blogged every chapter and it included like those photos that I was looking for. So it was very helpful and kind of interesting to go through. I did a few times and read what they said about each chapter. And I thought like that's kind of an appe- the idea of doing something like that is very appealing to me. So I thought that was worth checking out. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I agree about, yeah, reading about him. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that there isn't things, you know. It's, it's, I think, and then in turn, it makes reading the book better, right? Like, and there are, you know, like passages where I would really connect with him. It's just like it's an intense read. He's an intense read. I was thinking about, uh, gosh, it was. I don't know how long ago this was. We reread Jane Eyre on this podcast, and that was such a. A, a profound experience for me. And at the time, you know, we were all going through a hard time. You know, it was a deep pandemic and getting lost in the sort of warm embrace of the maximalist Victorian pro, the lushness of it was such an escape, you know, uh, it was, it was, it was uh, really like soothing to me. And I, I don't know why I didn't feel that about Melville. It feels more like it, you, like you got to work at it. Yeah. To get at Melville, which which doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but mm-hmm. it, it is interesting. Oh, we should talk, too, about one other thing we did in connection uh, last night, actually. Yeah. So I guess what I would say before you say that is that on the Beanstack Challenge for the Herman Melville month, I don't want to discourage people from, like, participating in this month. <laughs> or or the challenge in general because like what you need to do to achieve the Herman Melville badge is you can read Moby Dick. That's one activity. You could read literally anything else that he wrote, whether it's like a poem or a, a novella or short, short story. story. Um, you could watch a movie, you know, based on any of his works or about him. You can just listen to this episode and just two of those things earns you that badge, so. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Yes, last night we did watch In the Heart of the Sea. Yeah. And I'm... we'll be showing that at the library this summer with our summer oh, reading yeah. program. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it was good. I, I missed it when it came out. I don't mm-hmm. know why. But, you know, we also considered watching the old Moby Dick adaptation with Gregory Peck mm-hmm. and Ray Ra- Bradbury writing credit. And we may still... But I was I was kind of itching for something that would show the whaling in a more high production value way, mm-hmm. and it was it was interesting. Yeah. So in the heart of the sea is directed by Ron Howard, and I think he does a good job. You know, it's tons of special effects. I was at one point like saying out loud, I'm mentioning like how they filmed this. I was like, do you think they're like in front of a green screen and like a wave pool? Um, <laughs> But it does look very nice, and it helped me visualize, too. Like, in Moby Dick, it's very descriptive. Uh, He talks about, because they have the main ship, and then they have the little boats that go out to hunt the whales, and then they bring back the carcass to the main ship to be 
processed. But he talks about how like the the lines go around the boats and they spear him and how like you have to have so many feet of line to catch the whale because it'll run and it'll dive. And they have like a really, I mean, not for the faint of heart. If you don't like to watch hunting stuff or if you can't, I guess I don't like like to watch it. But it is kind of sad. There's some graphic yeah. stuff. But not it's not too bad, yeah. I don't think. As it's not as bad as it could have been. Uh-huh. So But it really shows, I guess, how that process worked. The other way I kind of know more about whaling is I read last a couple of years ago this manga series called Drifting Dragons. That's a fantasy series, but it's it's essentially about whaling, but the people are in like airships. And they hunt dragons in the sky. It's like whaling in the sky. The dragons are Whoa, whales. that sounds really interesting. It's interesting. And they talk a lot about the process of like flensing and using the parts of the whale. They were much in the books. The drifting dragons talk about all different uses of the different parts of the whale, much more than they did, you know, like in Moby Dick where they're just out for Especially o- in oil. Especially in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Oil, oil, as we're reminded a number of times in the movie. Oil. <laughs> Is what it's all about. And then I, it's interesting. And I mean, it has a bit of the. We talk about the framing of the movie. Yes. So there's a, it sounds like there's a number of things that went into Melville's inspiration for writing Moby Dick. But one of them was a real incident with a whaling ship, an Nantucket whaling ship called the Essex. That was, I think the phrase, the nautical phrase is stove stove by a whale this this ship it was a rather old ship it was like 20 years old but they'd re-outfitted it and and it took off down around the the bottom of south america and they were experiencing a lot of real fished out areas and there had been a discovery of this area off of south america quite a ways to the west 2,000 miles to the west where there were a lot of whales abundant whales and their ship was attacked by a whale and and sunk and some of the men the surviving men rigged up little whaling boats with sails and drifted slash sailed until they got to an island and then some of them stayed there and were later rescued and then drifted slash sailed even further and some of them remarkably some of them survived you know it was brutal they resorted to cannibalism resorted actually to at a certain point drawing lots to kill one of them and you know it it was tough when we watch a movie like that and so the movie is framed instead of like an adaptation of Moby Dick they frame it as Herman Melville is is researching for this novel he wants to write and so he goes to talk to the last survivor of the Essex and it's not easy, but he persuades him to tell him the story. Mm-hmm. Who he would have been 15 years old. Yes, I think actually 14, 14. Um, in real life. And so it's framed, you know, as the remembrances of this boy. And so it goes back and forth between this converse, this night-long conversation between Melville and uh, Nickerson, Tom Nickerson, who was the cabin boy, and and then the events of the Essex. And it was interesting. It was it was a good movie, and I thought it was really interesting to see how that whaling worked and stuff. It has a bit of the bit of the rosy tint that I would expect from a big Hollywood Ron Howard production. You know, it ends with a real like, all right, we resolved everything. You know, mm-hmm. and the main characters survive. The main character. I kept thinking more more would the main character yeah. survived and they kind of all you know the movie is set up so here's the th- as with all of these i immediately ran and just like started researching this <laughs> so the movie is based off a book by um nathaniel philbrook philbrook which i kind of want to read but you know they moved some stuff around they made some changes 
they created this whole conceit that the Essex tragedy was covered up by a mm-hmm. false inquiry that said it had run aground and nobody had ever broken that silence. And so Melville is persuading Tom Nickerson to do that, you know, sort of at the end of his life. Yeah, and he has a wife who's like, oh, my husband's just tormented by this past because he won't talk about it. Right. That's not true. <laughs> so uh, two of the survivors wrote books about it. Mm-hmm. I think it was known that it was a whale attack, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that was really freaky, you know, and, and disturbing to people. Um, in the movie, there's this real conflict that's set up between these two young men. Um, and it was really interesting in the movie. I thought they did it well. Uh, who's that one actor, up-and-comer, um, who plays the first mate? <laughs> up-and-comer. It's Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. He <laughs> plays He plays sort of this delightful, delightfully... Uh, crusty um first mate who had been promised he's like kind of come up from the bottom mm-hmm. and then he's uh, from a, a land family he's a landsman but he's he's you know sort of grappled his way and he had been promised a captaincy but he, instead he has to be first mate to this blue blood character who's like got something to prove got something to prove and maybe not experience not as experienced and so there's this real opposition between them in actuality, Mr. Chase, I think it's Mr. Chase, mm-hmm. the first mate, he wrote a book about it. And uh, Captain Pollard, Hel- Melville talked to him. Like, so this this conceit of like one survivor being the only one who talked to Melville, not, not quite true. The movie even kind of like does that. So he's like the only one around to talk to him in the movie. But like at the end when they come back, yeah, all of the, the ship owners who none of, you know, they just own the ship like investors they they don't want them to say what happened because it'll be like bad for whaling bad for the industry because people thought whaling was so safe and a <laughs> sure bet well also that like whales didn't have like you know they don't want people feelings. to think that whales are like also you know gonna start attacking ships yeah and i get why they do that as a conceit for the movie yeah like the one guy i it, i yeah. get it but they're like you have to lie so we can keep doing this thing and the Hemsworth character is like, I'm not going to do that. And then he's like, you know, Mike drop and walks away. And then when they're having like the inquest or whatever, the captain also like says what really happened. That's what I thought. You know, it had a, and I enjoyed. So you're like, so at what time did they perpetuate the story of the running aground? <laughs> they, they kind of intimate that Chase refused to lie and then just went off on his merry way. And then the captain lied, but all these uh, old guys decide to cover it up anyway. That's sort of like the intimation. But like at the end, yeah, that's the kind of thing. And I enjoyed the heck out of it where it's like, oh, this is a little bit like a little rosy or a Hollywood movie where it's like, the blue blood guy does the right thing. And all these uh, uptight rich guys are like, oh, and Hemsworth meets the boy in the street and gives him his pin, his whalebone pin. pin from having. And then Melville is is like, the guy's told, not, Nickerson's told him this story. And then Melville's like, you've given me the courage. And I'm like, courage? I'm like, to write the book? This guy has just told you <laughs> about how he was like inside a whale's head and held upside down over the edge of the ship and drifted in a boat for yeah, like, like almost... 90 days. And so I found I. It wasn't bad, but I thought it was funny mm-hmm. that Melville's like, oh, now I have the courage to do the difficult thing I need to do. And I'm like, 
Okay, buddy. Write the book. I, now you're going to go write a book about the stuff this guy had to yeah. live. Also, there's like a little joke at the end right. where they're like, did you hear that they discovered oil in the ground oil in Pennsylvania? Oil in oh, the ground. No, there were some real, there were some like cute winks and nods. <laughs> yeah. Or like early on when he's trying to convince the guy to talk to him, the guy's like, oh, you know, uh, my wife liked your books, but Nathaniel Hawthorne, that's a real writer. Yeah. Which is a real nod to his biography and the fact that, you know. Uh, he always wanted he to be. He wanted to be Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah. So there were like some real cute winks and nods. But overall, I thought it was really well done. Mm-hmm. And the acting was good. They had a, like a slew of, Real good actors. Lots of like fake heavy New England accents that were kind of hard to decipher sometimes. Yeah, well, because Hemsworth's accent, like his, his, he's from Australia, and and I I couldn't tell at times if his American accent that he has for the movie is slipping or if he's trying to do like a Bostonian. Oh, definitely doing like a Boston. There, I don't know what they were aiming for, but it was like a real old timey New England accent. Um, but maybe slipping. And then I know a number of the other guys were British. The actors are mm. British. And uh, it was just, you know, a little. sometimes it was like a little hard to hear, to make out what they were saying as water swirled around. And, and I don't know if you needed to know what they were yeah, saying. Yeah, the sails were going in the water <laughs> and all that. It was, you know, if you like sailing, you know, lots of sailing stuff. But, but yeah, I kind of want to read that Philbrook book. Yeah. It's a long rabbit hole. We need like several months for each author. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, we're too ambitious. I'm always like have this thing where when we propose the author, I'm like, you know, I'm I'm a completist. I'm like, I'll read it all and then I'll watch the movie and then I'll, you know. Yeah, I think anything like that, you can just fall down and this rabbit hole. And then we end up hole. just simplifying. I, I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I'll read something other than Moby Dick. Okay, I'll read a short story. Well, that's what's like you put on the schedule like this is the day you have to talk about it. And you're done or you're not done or you're ready or you're not ready. It's fine. But the other thing in that in that New Yorker article that you had sent me was she talks about the influence on his writing of Moby Dick of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And once I read that, I was like, I totally see it throughout the book. Like, that makes perfect sense to me. Like, he's writing this monster story. The framing of Frankenstein is around this, like, boat chase after this monster Right. And I think it helped me understand Moby Dick a little bit more. Yeah. And I read Frankenstein a few years ago for this podcast. And you can look back. I think I had a discussion with Elizabeth about it. No, I I thought what I really liked about Jill Lepore's thing, too, was she did all this framing around sort of like the feminist or lack of feminist aspects of Melville's life and work. You know, talked about his sister and sort of painted her as like somebody who really put her own ass ambitions on hold or you know put them aside she had her own ideas about writing a novel her own ideas but instead you know copied out her brother's words and a couple of things i just was like at one point his sister augusta is somewhere and she's having like this terrible illness and she collapses from the pain and melville doesn't go see her because he doesn't want to like stop work on one of his like page proofs or something like that. And then um, she talks about how at one point um, while he was writing Moby Dick, maybe his wife, you know, was nursing, got this terrible infection in her breast and like was so pain, pain and dizzy. They put sheets up over the wallpaper because it made her dizzy. And 
she talked about how male biographers of Melville totally framed it as like, oh my God, it must have been so hard for Melville to have a wife with like a body that got sick and oh my gosh, what an, <laughs> how, incon- what an inconvenience. Yeah. And to like drive his, his mother to the hospital oh or something. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And it was sort of what like. What a saint he must have been. And, and I, and uh, Jill Lepore, I love her. She's real funny and, and smart. She like lists all these things that these male biographers said and then she's just like, holy smokes. <laughs> So. All right, we're about out of our time. I feel like there is so much to say There's about so much this to say, case. but let's let's preview just real briefly preview um, June. I'm real excited about mm-hmm. this one. I'm going to read every book he ever wrote. Um, <laughs> Armistead Maupin. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with his work. There was recently a a reboot of an adaption on hit on Netflix, but of uh, Tales of the City, which. Um, which is probably his most famous book, mm-hmm. um, which is part of a series. Gay author in in San Francisco, originally writing his books as serials in the San Francisco Chronicle, a la Dickens. Mm-hmm. He's like the Dickens of San Francisco. He's like the Dickens of San Francisco. Also wrote a wonderful um, a memoir and uh, a number of things. And I'm really excited. And I found out about him watching a Canopy documentary uh, and so we're talking about him because he's amazing and because it's Pride, mm-hmm. Pride Month. He also, uh, Tales of the City was also selected as one of America's favorite books by the, the PBS thing that they did a few years ago. And the original adaptation miniseries of Tales of the City with Laura Linney was recently put up on Netflix and has been sort of rediscovered. It was a scandal. Oh, my gosh. When PBS aired it. In fact, they had to they had to move it to like showtime because whoa. I wanted to say too if you're going to read along with us, these books are a real pleasurable read, but I also recommend the audiobooks. Armistead Wapham reads them himself in his lovely lilting southern accent. Um so so check that out. Great. Well, thank you Austin for struggling through Herman Melville with me this month. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime. I feel like this book is my white whale. That ooh, there you go. Uh, maybe that's why um, it's resonated with so many people over the years. Yeah. The book is so frustrating. It really gives you a, a sense of how frustrating life's quests are, doesn't it? <laughs> it makes you feel like how Captain Ahab must have felt. That's right. Anyway. All um, right. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to your show. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye. Bye-bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. One final thought about Moby Dick. Like any good Victorian writer, Melville has a section on phrenology and uh, physiognomy where he talks about the sperm whale and how the integrity of the whale be because his head is so big and <laughs> also because the the mind extends from the skull down his spine and it's got so many vertebrae. Yeah. And then also a section where he compares the the head of the sperm whale to that of the right whale, clearly an inferior whale. 
Um, Clearly. And reading all, you know, all those Victorians who always, they're always talking always. about the I shape of someone's head. I remember that in Jane Eyre. It was mm-hmm. like, I knew I could trust him from the shape of his forehead. <laughs> and I'm like, lady, no. Yeah. It's interesting because Herman Melville is very invested in science and also very invested in pseudoscience. I don't know, <laughs> Melville or Ishmael. There's, right. yeah. Right. Anyway. Yeah. That's all.